Hello, and welcome to the epilogue of the first season of the Story Symphony. Now, a unique challenge with the format of this podcast is that it makes it really easy to continuously introduce new threads while not necessarily resolving old ones. For example, Martin Dittman, writer of Chapter 4, introduced a cat which never made another appearance, so for editorial reasons we unfortunately ended up killing the cat, so to speak. Martin also introduced a mysterious salad sandwich, which did feature a few times throughout the story, but was not a thread that was officially resolved. However, Angus Brown, writer of Chapter 8 and the voice behind our narrator Kyle, just could not let the salad sandwich go. Which brings us, dear listeners, to this epilogue. And here we go. Al was led down a long corridor, illuminated by harsh overhead lighting. It gave the space the feel of a hospital, but the sort of hospital you would see in a horror movie. Each window they walked past showed an empty, darkened room. If you stared hard enough, you could make out metal furniture inside. Chairs, tables, everything looked cold and sterile. Some of the tables had medical instruments on top, laid out in perfect lines, ready for use. After walking for a few minutes, the two guards that were flanking him stopped in front of a door. The guard that was closest reached over and opened it before stepping out of Al's way. He said nothing, but the implication was clear. Al smiled politely and said thank you to the guard. His voice came out slightly croaky and he coughed a little after speaking. He walked into the room and noted that this one had no windows. The guard pulled the door closed behind him the moment he was inside. Al turned around and looked at the closed door. He didn't hear any clicks or beeps to indicate the door locking, and he didn't see anything on the handle that showed it contained a lock at all. This was all very smart. The interior of the room was covered entirely with dull white linoleum. The floors, the walls, even the ceiling, all clean and slick with durable vinyl. In the centre of the room sat a medium-sized steel table, with two matching steel chairs sitting on either side, and a metal pitcher of water with two metal cups on top. Even if you'd never sat in one of these rooms before, you would still realise the implication of the linoleum and the steel. Everything was easily cleaned. It could be hosed, mopped, wiped down. It was non-absorbent. Al had been in one of these rooms before. Al understood the implications. The only surface in the room that seemed to stick out was the door. It was made of wood. A warm brown colour. Perhaps mahogany. Al didn't really know wood, but he knew that the only surface in the room that wasn't supposed to make him feel cold and uneasy was the warm, natural look of the door. He bet that if he ran his hand over it, he would be able to feel some of the natural roughness of the timber under his fingertips. This was also smart. It wasn't the sort of thing you were supposed to consciously think about, or even really notice. It was supposed to evoke a feeling. A desire. Everything in the room was unnatural, uninviting, except for the one way out. The door wasn't just a literal exit. It represented hope, comfort, a chance. Al also knew the door could afford to be wood, because a door was easily replaced. A few screws removed and you could have a new door within minutes. It didn't matter if it got stained with anything. (coughs) Al let out another cough, louder this time, more aggressive. He sounded like he might be getting sick. He took a seat at the table with his back to the door, casually crossing one leg over the other and placing his hands in his lap. Then he settled into the seat and tried to be as comfortable as he could on a piece of furniture designed purposefully to be extremely uncomfortable. After what was probably 10 minutes, 
he couldn't be sure they'd taken his watch when he arrived. An incredibly average looking man entered the room and placed a manila folder on the table before unbuttoning his jacket and sitting down. He was average height, average build, and had an average face. His average brown hair was cut in the most simple style you can imagine. His black suit and shoes showed absolutely no sign of design or style. They simply existed to cover his skin. The whole effect made him look like a cardboard cutout come to life. His only distinctive attributes were an ID tag with a barcode that was clipped to the pocket of his suit, and a brown leather gun holster containing a black pistol on his right hip. Hi, how are you? said the man, smiling warmly. I hope we haven't kept you waiting too long. Al smiled back. Not at all. It's only been a few minutes. The man nodded his approval of this. Good. A busy day, I'm afraid. Okay, down to business. My name's Tom, Tom Preminger. You can just call me Tom, though. Ah, like the director, said Al. Tom seemed confused. I beg your pardon. Preminger, replied Al. Tom's expression remained confused. Al went on. Otto Preminger. He was a film director. Made some classics. Anatomy of a Murder. Tom's expression relaxed and he smiled again, shaking his head. More of a TV man, I'm afraid. Don't have a lot of time for movies. You're missing out, said Al. He was a great director. He may even be an ancestor of yours. Tom pulled out a pen from his pocket and wrote down the name. I'll have to look him up. Maybe there's some royalties waiting for me. He laughed. Al laughed too, noting that Tom had missed Spot Preminger. Tom went on. May I call you Al? <coughs> Al nodded and coughed some more. Great, said Tom. Al, we just have some boring stuff we need to cover and then you can be on your way. I know this might seem a little odd and even a little scary, but I can assure you it's all pretty pedestrian. Just dotting some eyes and so on. Not scary at all, said Al. I understand completely. You've got to have everything in order. Formalities, right? Tom pointed at Al and winked. Formalities, that's it right there. Before Al could reply, he suddenly burst into a coughing fit, letting out several loud hacking sounds, his whole body shuddering as he struggled to get his breath back. Tom looked concerned. That sounds like a nasty one, he said. Are you alright? I'm sorry about that, said Al, as the coughing began to subside. Haven't been feeling the best these last few days. Can I get you anything? asked Tom. Tea? Coffee? Uh, are you hungry? No, no, I'm fine, thank you, Al said. I had a sandwich for lunch. A good one, too. Tom nodded and sat back down in his chair. Well, alright then, but please let me know if there's anything I can get you. I know it might look like it, but this isn't a prison. Tom opened the manila folder. He held it at just the right angle so that Al couldn't see what was in there, but it didn't matter. Al knew what was coming. So can you tell me what you know about the group that call themselves the firefighters? asked Tom. They're terrorists, replied Al. How's that? asked Tom. They're terrorists, repeated Al. You call them a group, but they're not a bunch of wildlife enthusiasts. They murder people and blow up buildings. They're terrorists. Of course, mused Tom. Very true. And forgive me for asking, but do you have any association with these terrorists? Al shook his head. Of course not. Why would I associate with terrorists? Why would anyone? Tom asked rhetorically. Al shook his head and looked dismayed. I wish I knew. It's such a shame when people feel the need to turn to such things. It'd be so much easier if people just talk to each other. Like us. Like we're doing right now. Al's expression turned neutral and he stared straight at Tom. Tom smiled and stared straight back. For a moment, the two men sat in silence. Then Tom closed the folder and put it on the table. 
He leaned back and crossed his legs, with his hands in his lap, copying Al's pose. Finally, he spoke. Okay then, let's talk. I'm not a fool, Al. I know you're a very smart man. A librarian. You must have read a lot of books in your time, taken in a lot of information. Your brain's probably like a supercomputer. So I'm going to be as straight with you as I know how. Someone made some very scary weapons, and you were holding one of those weapons when we met you. I'd really like you to tell me who made the weapons. Before Al could answer, he burst into another coughing fit, this one worse than the first. He doubled over, hacking loudly and gasping for air. He slid off the couch and crouched on the ground on all fours, coughing so badly he began to retch. Then quickly, with his head beneath a table, obscured from Tom's view, he jammed two fingers in his mouth and violently stabbed at the back of his throat. His gag reflex kicked in and he vomited onto the floor. Tom instinctively jumped up from his chair and stepped back. Are you okay? He asked. I just need a moment, croaked Al. Tom left the room in a hurry. As soon as Al heard the door close, he stopped coughing and began sifting through the mess. There were small bits of undigested bread and alfalfa and carrot from his sandwich, mixed in with the bile and other unidentified chunks. Then he found it. Mixed in amongst the muck, a small metal capsule. Years ago, swallowing the pellet had been a part of his daily routine, drilled into him as a part of his training. For the longest time, he hadn't thought about that part of his life at all. But ever since they'd started looking into the firefighters, he had begun to feel the urge to take up the habit again. He was sorry he was right, but he wasn't surprised. Al twisted the pellet open, stood up, and grabbed the metal pitcher of water on the table. Moving much faster and more elegantly than you would expect for a man of his age and size, he poured some water into his mouth but didn't swallow, holding it in his cheeks instead. Then he grabbed the empty metal cup and poured in the contents of the pellet, a fine white powder, about enough to cover half a thumbnail. Holding the cup in one hand and the pitcher in the other, he stood with his back to the door and waited silently for the sound of returning footsteps. When Tom re-entered minutes later holding a towel and a bucket, Al spun around and greeted him by slamming the metal water pitcher into his face. There was a loud crunching sound as Tom's nose broke and he let out a high-pitched squeal. Both hands instinctively went to his face and Al seized the opportunity to snatch his pistol holster and ID tag. Then Al raised his foot and kicked Tom squarely in the chest, the force severe enough to send the bleeding man reeling backwards into the hall. Tom fell to the floor and let out a second scream that echoed down the hallway, which was almost immediately followed by the sound of heavy boots running towards them. Al listened until the boots sounded like they were just outside the room, then he spat the water from his mouth into the cup and hurled it into the corridor. He slammed the door closed just as an enormous explosion rang out and sent a fireball shooting down the hall for 20 metres in each direction. The sound of boots stopped. The door to the room had been obliterated. Wood may be good for psychological manipulation, but it was useless against the force of the powder bomb. Al slowly stepped out into the hallway, his ears ringing from the explosion. The walls, floor, and ceiling were all charred black. The power had shut down, and the emergency lights had kicked in. The smell of burning rubber from melted boot soles was overwhelming, and Al did his best to hold his breath as he moved past them. He clipped Tom's ID tag to his own shirt pocket and the pistol holster to his belt and started jogging down the hallway, looking through every window and checking every door. As he did so, he passed several agents running towards the sound. A few quickly glanced at his chest and saw the ID card and kept running. Most didn't even look at him at all. People never look at the face, and why would they? It was something that always confused Al when he watched spy movies. Anytime someone was making an escape, he found it odd that somehow every single employee in the building knew exactly what that one particular prisoner looked like, and also seemed to know the face of every fellow employee and could recognise them instantly. 
Al knew from experience that this was not the case, and wherever he was right now was no different. Shady government facility or not, a workplace is a workplace. No one knows everyone. No one wants to know everyone. He found Apollo in a room similar to the one that he had been held in. The only real difference was that this room still had a door, which had been left wide open. The inside of the room was the same, but the conversation that had taken place inside had clearly been very different. Apollo was cuffed to the chair with her hands behind her back. The left side of her face was badly swollen, and her lips and nose were bloody. Al knew Apollo had a temper, and that she could really push someone's buttons if the mood struck her. It looked like the agent assigned to her must have had some pretty sensitive buttons. Apollo, time to get up and move, he said. He unclipped Tom's ID and swiped it across the sensor in the cuffs, freeing Apollo. She slowly raised her head and stared at him, blinking her eyes into focus. You're a fucking suit, she exclaimed. She took a swing at Al, but she was too slow and he was too well trained for her to connect. He jumped back and held up his hands. I am not a suit, Apollo. I am rescuing you. Now come on, stand up and come with me before someone comes back and tries to make my face look like yours. Apollo gazed up at him and it took her a few moments to finally realise that it was Al, not a guard who was standing in front of her. People never look at the face. You'd never be this pretty, Apollo said finally. I'd also never be this big of a pain in the ass. he shot back. Are your legs okay? She nodded as he began to help her to her feet. Great, said Al. Then let's just walk on out of here. I'm going to hold your arm and if anyone asks, I'm escorting you to another part of the facility. You just stay quiet and let me do the talking. Al took her arm and led her out of the room and down the hall. Up ahead, he could see exactly what he was hoping to see. An illuminated green exit sign. God bless occupational health and safety. Even secret government black sites still had to deal with the fearsome power of HR. He scanned Tom's ID on the panel next to the door and the two of them walked right out without a single person looking in their direction. They found themselves in an outdoor car park in what looked to be a well-built-up area of inner-city Melbourne. Perhaps it was South Yarra, or Collingwood. Gone were the days where these sorts of places would be in the middle of the desert. Just like everybody else, shadowy government operatives just couldn't be bothered with the commute. Al helped Apollo into the passenger seat of the staff car, then jumped into the driver's seat and swiped Tom's ID card over the ignition. The car hummed to life and Al shook his head at the arrogance of an organisation that programmed literally every system they had to operate off of one card. They thought they didn't need better security. They thought they were invincible. Al was determined to show that they weren't. As they drove, Al looked over to Apollo. She had her eyes closed and was leaning her head back, breathing softly. Are you feeling okay? He asked. I'm fine, she said gently. Then after a long pause, You know, I thought I was going to die. I'm sorry I didn't get to you sooner, replied Al. It's okay, said Apollo. I wasn't scared, just mad. Pissed me off that I wouldn't get to kill for some of the bitch that killed me. Al couldn't help but laugh. That explosion, was that you? asked Apollo. Al nodded. It was. How? asked Apollo. I had a good lunch, Al said, grinning. Apollo laid her head back on the headrest and closed her eyes again, making no effort to understand Al's explanation. Al was glad she was saving her strength. She was going to need it. They were going to have a lot of work to do now. <laughs>